Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. I'm going to take the conversation on climate change to the international level, something that I think you haven't had done yet in the lecture series. I assume you're familiar now with the science of climate change, so I'll uh, blend that out and I'll focus primarily on that single question that I've put up here as the title for my lecture, Is Climate Change a Security Threat? And I'm going to approach this question from an international relations perspective. Now, to get started, however, I want to take you back to 2005. I want to take you into the realm of global business, just to illustrate why the question of security might be relevant for us. I want to ask you to focus on one famous or infamous company in that space, ExxonMobil, one of the leading oil companies of the world. It's by, by far the largest private oil company. It has been very successful in exploring and, and producing oil around the world. It produces annual revenues. Uh, the figures for 2021 20, uh, are $286 billion. It employs uh, over 60,000 people that work for the company looking for oil, drilling for oil. And, of course, it is one of the main contributors to climate change. It's one of the so-called carbon majors, those top global firms that have produced a large amount of greenhouse gas emissions by way of, of di uh, digging for fossil fuels. Now, why do I bring ExxonMobil into this conversation? Because ExxonMobil has what might be called a climate problem. Now, you might say the climate has an ExxonMobil problem, but I'm going to focus on the climate problem that ExxonMobil has, which is to do with the fact that despite its public denials that climate change is real or needs to be taken seriously, it has actually known about global warming for some time. ExxonMobil has employed scientists all along that have been able to document the global warming trend and that have provided internal analysis to the board for many years, going back to the 1980s, suggesting that climate change is real and that it ought to be taken seriously. So what is ExxonMobil's climate problem? Well, the problem is simply that it chose to misrepresent that internal research. Its famous CEO, Lee Raymond, who led the company first when it merged between Exxon and Mobil, it became ExxonMobil, and then when it became one of the most successful oil companies in the United States from the 90s till 2005. Lee Raymond was famous for denying the reality of climate change, and he made it a company policy to go out and lobby hard against any environmental restrictions on its oil operations. And famously in 1997, just a few weeks before the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated in Japan, Lee Raymond said at the World Petroleum Congress, which was taking place in China at the time, he said, first, the world isn't warming. Second, 
even if it were oil and gas wouldn't be the cause. And third, no one can predict the likely future temperature rise. We now know that ExxonMobil knew that this was a false statement, yet this was company policy. Why was this a problem for the company? Because by 2005, the year that Lee Raymond stepped down from the leadership, the company itself started to begin a new process of strategic review and planning for the future. Oil companies do this on a regular basis. And its review, called A View to 2030, tried to establish what the world would look like 25 years into the future. It tried to extrapolate from current trends and tried to establish whether there would still be a future for ExxonMobil in 2030 and whether ExxonMobil therefore had to plan differently. And what did the review show? I've listed three key messages of that review here. First of all, quite rightly, the company expected the global population to continue to grow and with it would be uh, further economic growth that would stimulate more and more demand for fossil fuels, particularly in developing countries. <coughs> the emerging economies of the global south were particularly dependent on an industrialization model that was very much uh, carbon intensive, driven by industrialization based on production of uh, fossil fuel, energy, steel making, the uh, building of infrastructure and so on. And particularly oil was going to be needed uh, into the future because it was essential to keeping transport going. You needed oil and you still do need a lot of oil to power up trucks, trains and planes in particular. And so the review suggested that unless, unless there was an unforeseen black swan type event that would curtail demand for oil, we are in for a beautiful future of ever-growing demand for our oil products. That was the review. Unless, unless they concluded, the world came to the conclusion that climate change was indeed real, that global warming was accelerating, and that therefore the world would come together, its governments, the world's governments would come together, and declare an emergency. Similar to what happened in the Second World War, when governments decided that emergency-type responses are needed to bring climate change under control. ExxonMobil strategic planners were smart enough to realize that this was the one unforeseen turning point that could destroy future markets for that company. And what did they conclude? That this was an unlikely scenario, that the world would not perceive climate change as such a security threat that we would end up with drastic governmental interventions in the global oil market. And that, therefore, I hope, explains the significance of my question today. What if we were to conclude that climate change is indeed a security threat? That it is a global emergency that requires that kind of drastic intervention in global markets that governments were willing to do back in 1939 to 45, when governments took over the running of the economy, when they imposed rationing when they forced businesses to deliver results for their war effort. What if we were in such a situation today? So this is the question I want to put to you today, and I want to explore with you what it would take to get us there. So I'm going to answer, try to answer the following three questions. One, 
is indeed climate change a security threat that requires an emergency type response? I shall try and explain why I think there is no clear and unambiguous answer to that. Some of you may already have concluded, yes, of course it is. What's the point of this question? But I, I shall try and explain why that's not easy to answer. Secondly, even if we were to conclude it is a security threat, we do have to uh, establish uh, by, by looking around uh, current government policies uh, quite clearly that the world hasn't reached the conclusion yet that that response, an emergency type response, is needed. Why does the world not yet treat climate as a security threat? And I want to conclude also with a particular focus on the question of what could we do if we got the world's leaders to that point? What would be an international response, particularly through the UN, particularly through the UN Security Council, that would allow us to treat climate change as an urgent security threat? So those are the three questions I want to explore with you. And, and let me get started. I, I should explain my approach. Some of you may be studying international relations, but most of you aren't. So forgive me for rolling out a few basic assumptions that we make in international relations, and that perhaps gives you an idea of, of, of how we think about climate change. In international relations, we're particularly concerned with the role of states and how they relate to each other. We're interested in understanding what motivates states in their behavior. And the key assumption, as always, is that states are primarily interested in securing their survival. Uh, this is known as protecting the state's sovereignty. And that motivates, motivates states to act in certain ways. The reason they act in certain ways is not least conditioned by the fact that we don't have a world government that would protect states and their existence. States have to be constantly on the lookout. You might have the wrong kind of neighbors. You might have the wrong kind of allies. Uh, so you need to be constantly on the lookout for threats, security risks out there. This is known as international anarchy. We assume that the world is anarchic, not in the sense of chaotic, but in the sense that there's no high authority that ensures that every single state will survive in the end. Right? There is a fundamental difference between domestic politics, where there are high authorities, the police, courts, governments, and international relations. And as countries such as Ukraine and others have experienced recently, you do need to be prepared for potentially the worst case scenario, that your neighbors turn hostile. So for that reason, states behave in a certain way. They conduct what is known as power politics. They will try and maximize their own power and they will be particularly concerned about the power that their neighbors or adversaries gain. And so the power balance is of concern to states. Now, we shouldn't forget that states can also try and minimize the effect of that anarchy problem by creating institutions, norms, treaties. They create international organizations. They sign up to certain codes of conduct, international treaties. International law has accumulated over the years that constrains the behavior of states. But you can never be sure as a world leader that international law alone will guarantee your survival. So you need to have a backup. That backup could be military force, it could be an alliance system, it could be just the ability to go it alone. And for that reason, climate change as a global threat is really difficult to fit into this kind of framework 
where international institutions are not reliable and durable, or at least not always durable, where even if you sign a climate treaty that obliges countries to reduce their emissions, you can never be assured that other countries will do exactly as they promise. And so the dilemma for states is, how do you ensure that you deal with emerging threats such as cl climate change effectively, but without undermining your position in the international system, without shifting the balance of power? And so security threats are of concern, but the question is, how can we tackle them through the existing institutional framework in international relations? What kind of security threats are we talking about? States take them seriously. The most common way to define these security threats is to think of a security threat as one that undermines your national independence, your sovereignty, your survival. This is the traditional, conventional, traditional uh, national security perspective. So these are the kind of threats that emanate from neighboring countries in the form of military aggression. That's the sort of the the bedrock of security thinking in international relations. And you could begin to develop an argument that says climate change could emerge as such a national security threat, particularly when the effects of global warming undermine the stability of states and produce a kind of a, a political and an economic dynamic that drives people, for example, to migrate abroad, migration as a threat to national security, or that undermines state stability, civil wars that then spill over into the international realm. So there is a way in which we can capture climate change as a threat. But there's also a more advanced, a more unconventional way of thinking about security, which is often referred to as human security. This is uh, often propagated by the UN and various other organizations that have argued that actually security in an interdependent global economy comes from many different sources, not just from other states in the form of military aggression, but primarily from the fact that we're all economically interdependent, that disruptions abroad can reverberate in our own society, that, for example, energy independence can harm us, particularly when energy flows are cut off. And there's also that environmental dimension that we might want to consider. Environmental harm from abroad can undermine the stability and the well-being and the prosperity of our society, and therefore we need to think of those threats too. And this opens the door, of course, for thinking about climate change as <clears throat> a security threat that we can take more seriously. Let's just run through the various threats that are recognized as security threats. I mentioned Ukraine already. This is an image of a Russian tank that was used in the invasion of Ukraine that started just over a year ago, on the right, you see the current map of Ukraine and the territory that Russia has occupied. This is the most obvious case of a security threat that states need to prepare for. And we know from what happened in Ukraine that the state, once confronted with a security threat of this kind, is able to take extreme measures to deal with that threat. Conscription, preventing the male population from leaving the territory, acquisitioning industries to produce weapons for the war effort. And we see that also spilling over. So in Europe, in North America, governments are also sending military aid to Ukraine in a way they would have never done before. A security-type response allows you 
to transgress those boundaries. It allows you to take measures that produce a very different kind of result that normal politics doesn't. Again, related to the Ukraine conflict, we also see how energy has now been weaponized and is being used as a security tool. On the left, you see a picture of a Gazprom, uh, Gazprom engineer who's seemingly turning off the flow of gas to Western Europe. That's indeed what Russia has done since February 22. It has reduced the flow of gas in order to harm Western Europe and its support for Ukraine. At the same time, uh, West European governments have um, invested in new terminals, such as the one on the right. This is a new LNG, liquefied natural gas terminal, that Germany built in order to import alternative gas sources. Interesting enough, Germany was able to build that new terminal in 200 days. If you know anything about recent German public infrastructure projects, think of the Berlin-Brandenburg uh, airport or the new uh, terminal, the rail terminal in Stuttgart. Uh, they've run over time and over budget. Uh, Germany has developed a reputation for poor public project management, and yet they managed in a securitized context to build this new terminal in 200 days, sweeping aside all regulatory and bureaucratic uh, hurdles that they faced in the past. Security threats allow you to shortcut normal routes of public politics is the key message here. And then there's a third security threat that we've all experienced recently. The pandemic, COVID-19, has also led to a kind of securitized response. Uh, governments were suddenly able to do things that we would have never thought were possible. They forced us to stay away from lecture theaters. They forced us to stay at home. They've rem removed the ability to travel abroad. They've imposed new restrictions on travel. Uh, lockdowns of all sorts have been imposed on the back of a pandemic that at the root cause is just a health problem, but was turned into a global security threat by governments, not least because of the drastic impact it had on the population's health. And so these are just three examples of how ranging from a national to a more human security perspective, states are able to use security threats to develop responses that shortcut normal politics. So if you look at the securitized responses that governments undertook in response to these three, we saw massive military mob mobilization and the use of force. In the first case, an energy uh, weaponization or an economic rationing that was imposed on countries uh, that are either exposed to military threats or that are uh, supporting Ukraine and, of course, population lockdowns. So, so in, in short, a security threat allows you to securitize an issue. And securitization, if you want to reduce it to its essence, is, is, is simply the removal of an issue from normal politics. Declaring an issue a security threat allows you to remove something from the normal political contention, party politics, ideological contests, distributional conflicts in parliament, and simply declare that it is an emergency situation that requires immediate action. And so the question from our perspective is, of course, wouldn't that be the kind of response the world needs to deal with climate change? Because if we all agree that this is spiraling out of control, now is the time to act. Should we not 
be able to get ahead and, and, and try out a kind of a emergency response, ideally on a global scale? Should we not bang heads together, get heads of governments to sit down and declare a climate emergency globally and then pursue exactly those kind of responses that have been used in order to deal with other national security threats? To understand why that has proved so difficult, we need to just realize what it takes to securitize an issue. So this is a brief excursion into international relations theory. I'll keep it very light and brief. This takes us into what is known as the Copenhagen School of Security. There are other perspectives on security. But the basic point that I want to get across, and I think that should be fairly uncontroversial, whatever your theoretical leanings in that debate are, is that there isn't such a thing as an objectively giving, given security threat. All security threats are socially constructed. They depend on a social act where a securitizing agent, this could be a world leader, this could be a social group, tries to convince an audience, that could be a government, that could be society at large, that could be the international community, that a certain issue needs to be treated as a security threat. Now, some of these threats seem more objective. When Russian troops invaded Ukraine on 24th February last year, I don't think we needed a long social agreement process to arrive at the conclusion that that was an imminent and urgent security threat. Although when Ukraine was invaded in 2014, by paramilitary forces from Russia that did not wear Russian uniforms, that supported a secessionist movement in Ukraine, in the Donbas region, that was much less clear-cut. That proved more difficult to securitize internationally. And as the European response after 2014 showed, Germany and other European countries continued to engage with Russia in terms of energy uh, uh, trade uh, they didn't take that security threat seriously. It was contested. That was not fully securitized. So even military threats are not always as clear-cut as they seem. So what we need to see is a, a full-scale securitization whereby an audience, a target audience, is convinced by the argument that an issue is a security threat. So we can do this at different levels. We can do this in our local community, at university level. We can do it at societal level. We can take it all the way to the international level. But the key point to note is not all securitization succeeds. In fact, many securitizations don't succeed. And so we have to deal with that situation where there's a lot of securitization going on without it ever leading to such results. So coming back to our topic, I put the question back to you. Is climate change a security threat? On the basis of what I've said so far, at first sight, I think it should be obvious why it ought to be treated as a security threat. Starting at the human security level, it's clear that if you look at just these four events of the last year, from the floods in Pakistan that destroyed livelihoods of many, many millions of people, to the wildfires that were raging from California to Australia, the extreme heat that India experienced last summer with temperatures rising to beyond 50 degrees Celsius, with entire communities 
uh, forced to stop work out in the fields and entire factories shutting down, all the way to the hurricane season that visited the Gulf of Mexico. Those are the kind of crises that we're seeing more and more. They're destroying livelihoods. They're impacting on the well-being of society. They are a human security threat, and they're only getting worse. And as these crises then lead to the kind of uh, political failings, states collapsing, migration flows being kicked off, it's easy to see how this should also be seen as a future, perhaps indeed a current, national security threat. So I suspect if I asked you to vote, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't ask you to that now, we would probably have a majority saying, of course, climate change is a security threat and ought to be taken seriously, therefore. So, interesting to note that I'm not alone in concluding this. We've seen a massive wave of so-called securitization moves across the world, particularly in the developed world, particularly in this country in Europe, but also in, in the United States and Canada, where a whole host of parliaments, local councils, have declared a climate emergency. In this country alone, in the UK, 75% of all local councils at different levels have declared a climate emergency. In 2019, the British Parliament declared a climate emergency. Uh, the European Parliament declared a climate emergency. We are, according to these declarations, in emergency mode already, at least since 2019. That's an interesting development. Politicians are waking up to that. We also see military organizations taking this much more seriously. So you have various policy papers being developed in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Pentagon has taken climate change very seriously. On the right, you see one of the latest studies produced by the Pentagon, uh, 2019. Uh, so even in the years of Donald Trump, um, the Pentagon pursued climate security studies in order to prepare itself for a climate-disrupted international future. NATO has been actively studying climate change for many years to understand how it needs to change in response to the climate threats that are emerging. And these securitization moves have now left the sort of the, the global north, a lot of developing countries and their militaries are now looking at that. Even China, uh, the leadership there, has started to take this much more seriously. So that's an interesting development, that we're beginning to see military organizations breaking down the barrier between what used to be national and human security and, and accepting that the human security implications of climate change are spilling over into their predominantly national security concerns. And since 2007, we've also had debates at the highest level, the United Nations Security Council, which is, of course, the supreme body that uh, dictates policy interventions by states around issues to do with international security, peace, and war. And it's interesting that it's the UK that has initiated the first such debate back in 2007, and the, the British government keeps pushing that debate. Only last month, the UK ambassador to the United Nations, Barbara Woodward, led in a debate again on the impact of climate change uh, on international security, and the focus was very much on uh, rising sea levels. And we've had a, a number of these debates, and the Security Council keeps coming back at this issue as one of global concern. So it would be tempting to conclude 
that we're getting there, that the security implications of climate change are being taken seriously. But if we take stock of these moves, all that I can conclude is that there is an established discourse around the world. We're all used to talking about climate crisis, climate emergency, climate breakdown. This has seeped into public discourse. You turn on the radio, you listen to parliamentary debates, people use those words quite frequently. But beyond that, beyond engaging human and national security notions, not much has changed because, in fact, climate change remains part of normal politics. It's still very much embedded in the usual slow processes of parliamentary decision-making. It's debated in the context of industrial policy, trade policy. We haven't seen any form of emergency response organized either at the national or at the international level. All, without exception, all securitization moves in politics and international politics have so far failed to conclude. And that is interesting because that opens up that huge gap between, on the one hand, the widespread perception that climate change ought to be securitized and the reality that we're still dealing with climate change as a humdrum issue that can be spun out and dealt with through normal processes. So I want to briefly explore with you why that might be the case. Because I think that gives us a sense of whether, A, something can be done about this, whether we need to shift the discourse somehow, and B, whether there are still some benefits to be derived from a securitization discourse as it has unfolded in the past. So the question in the background is, should we just give up on the security discourse, or should we keep pushing, even if it doesn't produce the results? Let me explore this with you. Why has securitization failed? The first reason clearly has to do with the temporal dimension of climate change. And I'm sure you've explored this before with previous speakers. I can take most of this for granted. Although the impacts of climate change are being felt today, although rising temperatures, disturbed weather patterns, rising sea levels are all there for us to observe, the really catastrophic impact that we are told is likely to come down the road will not be felt for many years to come. Much of this depends, of course, on what kind of temperature rises we should expect. This is inevitably uncertain, not least because we don't know what policies we shall adopt. If we were to cut emissions successfully in the coming years, we can keep temperatures perhaps to around 2 degrees. If we fail, temperature rises off to 3 degrees, 4 degrees, perhaps 5 degrees are inevitable. But much of that depends on how the global ecosystems will respond to our continued emissions of greenhouse gases. So there's an uncertainty built into that. The consequences will be felt sometime into the future. The politicians that have declared an emergency today will not be in government in the future. And so for them, this is a far less urgent task that they don't need to take that seriously. There's this gap, therefore, justifiably so, between anticipating grave consequences in the future and taking measures now, and the two have not yet been brought together to stimulate that kind of response. Looking at it from an international relations perspective, I would go one step further. I would argue 
it is actually wise policy from an IR perspective not to rush into an emergency response. Why would an individual state cut down on emissions and take an emergency response, get rid of oil production, coal production, overnight, unless we are assured that other nations will do the same? Why would you undercut your industrial strength that is underpinning your military strength that determines whether you will be a powerful nation in the future? Why would you do it to your own economy and society if the other nations are not doing the same? Does the Paris Agreement that we signed in 2015 give you that assurance that other nations will follow? Should you rush into action when others are taking it easy? There is an imperative, therefore, in international relations not to take drastic action when time horizons are so long and future outcomes in terms of benefits and costs are uncertain. The more uncertainty there is, the less likely you want to commit to drastic action today. And that is one of the golden rules of international relations. Well, perhaps golden is the wrong term to use here. Perhaps the inescapable dilemmas of international relations. Secondly, of course, we know that the root problems of climate change are quite complex. They're rooted in the industrial system, broadly speaking, in the many different economic activities that go on in our economy, from agriculture to energy production, from transport to industrial manufacturing. And by the time you look at the different sources of emissions, and by the time you disentangle that industrial web that lies beneath the climate problem, it's actually difficult to work out where you would target your emergency response. You're going to ban all flying overnight in order to get a grip on the problem. You're going to shut down chemicals production because it's highly energy intensive. Do you force all oil companies, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, out of business overnight to get a grip of the problem? Where do you start? Can you do it without harming industrial production and industrial society? How do you even use an emergency response when the kind of transition, transition that we need to engineer towards green energy, towards green lifestyles, towards green urban planning takes many years, decades to produce? When was the last time we produced a green energy revolution overnight through emergency type securitized responses? This takes decades to play itself out. Industrial societies are complex structures that need careful fine-tuning. And so it's not clear how we would even go about tackling the problem through kind of emergency responses. Anyone who tells you to stop digging for oil is selling you snake oil, I'm afraid. Uh, this is not a, an easy solution to adopt. And what's more, when you look for securitized responses, usually they are most likely to occur where they're targeted other people that threaten us. There's also something about the anonymous nature of climate change. It's hard to pin it down. I've given you one character, Lee Raymond, ExxonMobil's famous CEO. Okay, that's an easy target. We could just about agree that he bears some responsibility. But beyond that, who else would you blame? There's the Carbon Majors database, the top 100 companies that carry a huge responsibility in terms of past emissions. Yeah, we could probably find those 100 CEOs and blame them. But who else would you blame? Where would you pin responsibility? Is it not in some way all of us, particularly in rich societies that are benefiting from this system? 
So it makes it difficult to develop a security response when we don't quite know who to target. And finally, this takes me back into the international realm, even if we were to overcome these obstacles, we just don't have a global consensus on this. Back in 2009, at the Copenhagen Climate Conference, when a successor agreement to the Kyoto Protocol was to be negotiated, countries disagreed. They sat down in, in a big huddle and tried to work out a, an agreement on, on how to uh, establish clear targets, legally binding targets, and in the end, they failed to reach an agreement, and we ended up with a non-binding set of uh, climate pledges that are enshrined in the Paris Agreement because of the failure to reach global consensus on how to go about cutting back emissions, we ended up with a voluntarist approach in the form of the Paris Agreement. And we now face even worse prospects for international cooperation, particularly in the context of US and China a rivalry. Their geopolitical contest is, is getting worse. They're locked into a zero-sum game at the global level, and that is making any effort to reach global consensus on a, an emergency type response very difficult indeed. Now, is there any way we could reframe the climate threat? Could the climate threat perhaps accelerate and become so bad that all these problems could be overcome? Let me run an, a thought experiment with you. What if we realized that suddenly within a relatively short space of time, an asteroid was about to hit Earth? And in case you're thinking, this is just pure science fiction, the European Space Agency has just a couple of days ago announced that we are likely to expect, an, or can expect, an asteroid to hit the Earth. Okay, relax. In 2046, uh, they pinned it down to uh, Valentine's Day in 2046. I'm not quite sure that was a, a smart move. Um, uh, I, I don't think that particularly motivates anyone to take that more seriously, but there you are. So Valentine's Day 2046. That asteroid now stands a good chance of hitting the Earth. It's a relatively small asteroid, so you, you can relax. But if it was a larger asteroid, it could potentially wipe out uh, the conditions for human life on the planet. Just imagine for a moment that we found a new asteroid approaching, large enough to destroy life on this planet, and we had three months left to do something about this. Would we not be able to securitize that environmental threat? Would we not be able to agree the timing of this makes it an urgent request for action? It is a true emergency. If three months is all we have, surely we must stop doing whatever we're doing in normal politics. We must gather our forces that we have at our disposal to fight that threat. Will we not be able to overcome international discord? Will we not be able to get the Chinese and the American leader to sit down and say, let's aim our interballistic missiles instead of against each other at that asteroid? Would we not be able to mobilize the UN Security Council and say, this is the challenge that humanity was waiting for, to unite us all? I would suggest we would overcome those difficulties. I would suggest we would be able to mobilize an international response. This is not just the stuff of Hollywood movies, and there are plenty of bad movies on that subject out there if you want to 
research this topic further. This is the moment that in some ways world society had been waiting for, to overcome our differences, our normative, political, and economic differences, to create a securitized response against an environmental threat that would harm us all in more or less the same way, in a timely manner. So my only question, therefore, is could climate change approach that kind of nature of environmental threat? And I think without going into that too much, you can probably work out why it has proved so difficult to reach that point. Because although climate change is accelerating in terms of its impacts, it's still playing out over decades. Because although we know what the problem is, it has so many diffuse sources. It isn't that single asteroid that we can target. We wouldn't quite know where to shoot to hit climate change on its head. And, of course, overcoming those barriers of cooperation in the international system. Bridging the great powers to get them to take a collective responsibility on behalf of the planet is proving difficult when the threat is not material, imminent, and, and life-threatening. So, what's left, therefore? I'm conscious that I'm the penultimate speaker in this lecture series, and it's always incumbent on the last speakers to end on a note of optimism, though you wouldn't pick someone representing international relations as an academic discipline to deliver on that front. I'm afraid there's very little in, in the conduct of states in international affairs that, that lends itself to an optimistic outlook. But let me try and see what space there is for a securitized response in the international system. And let me perhaps squeeze out just a small dose of optimism in that space. And the, the body that we are looking at here is, of course, the central body that is entrusted by the UN Charter, that's Article 24, to have primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. That is the key message that the UN gave the UN security members along on their journey, to look after peace and security. Now, for a long period, that was narrowly interpreted to be mainly about military threats to international peace and security. But since the early 2000s, and particularly since the first UN security debate in 2007, climate change has now been sort of smuggled into the UN security debates. In fact, we've now had a series of these debates. More and more countries are urging the Security Council to act. And it's not just the UK and France and Germany, it's increasingly developing countries, particularly small island states, the Maldives, Pacific island states. They can make a legitimate claim for saying that their future survival, their sovereignty is threatened by climate change. The Maldives will be gone by the end of this century if we don't stop global warming because the sea levels are rising ever faster. So for them, this is a, an imminent threat to peace and security. And for that reason, the Security Council has reluctantly come to the conclusion that climate change needs to be taken seriously. And they have made some interesting statements, presidential statements, uh, so they are not as, as firm and as binding as they might be, but they are nevertheless significant, because climate change has now been identified, for example, as a threat multiplier. So it's at least recognized as an indirect threat to security and peace, because by destroying the domestic stability of societies and their livelihoods, it is 
multiplying other threats that are undermining global peace and security. So I think there is the beginning of a movement that's worth watching. What can we expect, however, from the Security Council? The sort of entry-level action that can be taken by the Security Council is to do mostly with conflict prevention, so the good missions that the UN undertakes to deal with conflicts before they reach the hot phase, or peacekeeping after conflicts have broken up, broken out and, and need to be resolved, or indeed humanitarian intervention to deal with human suffering in conflict situations. Now, even those interventions are often controversial, and because the UN Security Council contains five permanent members, it often doesn't reach consensus on such interventions. One of the so-called P5 will invariably intervene and, and veto any such intervention, particularly if it concerns their interests or an ally that they want to protect. And for that reason, much of the talk about climate change hasn't led to proper interventions of that sort yet, though I, I think the momentum is building for that. What is more unlikely, however, is that the UN Security Council would use so-called Chapter 7 powers. Those are the extreme powers that it is entitled to use in situations where global peace is directly threatened. So this would authorize states, for example, to use military force to, to restore peace and security. Uh, it could also involve the creation of an international criminal court. It could also uh, involve the imposition of sanctions against states that violate peace. Quite how that would solve the climate problem, are we going to have a military intervention to close down a coal mine in China, in Indonesia? I, I struggle to see that as a, an appropriate response. But if other international commitments were to harden around climate mitigation, the Security Council could play a bigger role in terms of enforcing those commitments. And that is perhaps one of the ways in which we could imagine a securitized response from the UN Security Council, lending its support to the agreements that have been reached in other UN contexts. The problem so far is, of course, that no great power consensus exists on the Security Council playing such a role. Both Russia and China, for obvious reasons, resist such a move, but even the United States is, is openly cautious about empowering that body with more of a role in that space. So as yet, therefore, this remains an incomplete securitization, but one glimmer of hope perhaps exists that we could push this debate further to reach a more positive outcome in that debate. So a small glimmer of hope, um, perhaps not enough for you in the audience, but one that I think we can realistically build on. I would conclude that climate securitization is not entirely fruitless, even though it, it doesn't look like it can change the politics of climate change. It remains a useful strategic device in normal politics. It helps us to identify the urgency of the climate problem, even if we can't redefine it as an emergency problem that requires emergency powers. It remains a tool in our toolbox of normal climate politics to put pressure on high authorities, governments, states, the UN, to do more. Whether it'll ever lead to a securitized response, I doubt, but that perhaps isn't even the point of these debates. So there's not all lost in that debate, and climate security will therefore remain on the agenda, even though it doesn't hold any uh, sort of key to unlock the great paradox that we face, which is why we're not doing enough on climate change. 
Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.